Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and I'm here with my collaborator and comrade in arms, Paul Hartfield. Hi, Stephen. The Bureau of Lost Culture is dedicated to recollecting countercultural stories. We produce publications, films, events, installations, and broadcasts evoking the spirit of the underground, independence, resistance, and provocation. Searching beneath the surface to reveal hidden stories of counterculture. Resonating with those who've taken risks to go against the establishment beyond censorship, outside the forbidden. You can find out more about us at www.bureauoflostculture.com. Now, today's edition. This broadcast is dedicated to radio, on the radio. Dedicated specifically to Cold War radio, the shortwave. You may have come across our project, X-Ray Audio, dedicated to the underground community of musicians and music lovers and bootleggers who cut their own records of forbidden music onto X-ray film in the Cold War era of the Soviet Union when all sorts of culture was forbidden and repressed. Well, in the during the investigation for that project, we kept coming across stories of shortwave radio. And in fact, of course, in these times of Skype and mobile phones, and Spotify and all that stuff, the days of shortwave radio possibly seem very far away, even if we knew about them at all. But for many years, shortwave radio, for many people, was a window to the world in some respects. And during the Cold War, shortwave and radio altogether played a part in that war. In fact, there was a battle an invisible battle going on in the skies around people between east and west crossing the Iron Curtain with those mysterious things called radio waves. And today we're going to be talking about various aspects of shortwave Cold War radio. We're going to begin in a moment with a special guest who's come from Russia to speak to us about the extraordinary story of the Soviet radio jammers. And we're going to be talking to another guest, Alex Khan of the BBC, the Russian correspondent, who's going to be talking to us about a very sweet, in a way, story of the radio hooligan in the Soviet Union. And finally, we're going to be talking about a strange thing called the Russian woodpecker. So if you like birds and birdsong, you can stick around and see what that really is about a woodpecker. But let's begin with this. You are tuned to the voice of America in Washington. Time for jazz. Willis Conover in Washington, D.C. with the Voice of America Jazz Hall. Tonight, a very rich big band. Well, if you just tuned in, this isn't the Voice of America. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. And what was that strange electronic warbling sound which was interrupting Willis Conover? as he broadcast his jazz program 
on The Voice of America. It was something called a jamming signal, a Soviet jamming signal. In this edition, devoted to radio and Cold War stuff, we're going to begin with a conversation about that very strange Cold War radio phenomenon, jamming. And to talk about it with us, I'm very pleased that we have a friend and a guest from Russia. He is Vladimir Rayevsky. I don't really need to introduce him because he's used to this sort of stuff himself, radio and all that. So I'll let him introduce himself. Who are you, Vladimir? Well, um, I'm, I'm a Russian television journalist and a presenter. And also I host some radio shows back to Russia, so I'm kind of your colleague um, and in the other part of the world. <laughs> and uh, also I have... Um, I, I produce some videos for cultural institutions and uh, and this is the reason why I'm here because I I was lucky to win a grant from British Council and and which is part of British Embassy in Russia now and I was sent here to research the fields of f- video production and television documentary here in Great Britain as we consider you, the, your school um, is one of the best in the world so I'm happy to be here to meet people and to to come to your radio station. We are very happy to have you here. Now, one of the many things that you've done is you've made this fascinating documentary called Jammers. I don't know what the, what the Russian is for that. What is the Russian for Jammers? The Russian word is, uh, it sounds very Russian, actually. It's Glushilki. I'm not going to attempt to say that. Glushilki. 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 We could be here for some time with that. Um, <laughs> And it's about jammers. Now, we think jamming and music, you think you imagine some jazz musicians in a room together all playing improvised stuff, but no, this is actually about radio jammers. A time in the Cold War when, in the Soviet Union, signals were broadcast to prevent signals from here, from London, from America, from other places in the world, reaching the ears of Soviet citizens. Now, Vladimir, it's a fascinating story, and we were talking earlier, this is one part of the story of the Cold War, and it's part of the Cold War, a war that was waged invisibly, wasn't it? I mean, radio was a very important part of the Cold War, no? Yeah, if if you if there was a wire to connect Soviet people to the Western, to the free world, they would cut it <laughs> easily. But as there was no wire and there were radio waves, um, it was a little harder to to compete them. So... When the Cold War was on in 1946 or so, uh, immediately there were uh, radio stations established in Russian language to to broadcast over the territory of Soviet Union. I think BBC was the first here in Britain, maybe 1946 or seven, and then the the Voice of America appeared, and then in 1953 there was established an American radio station called the Radio. Liberty, Radio Liberation at first, and then Radio Liberty, that exists now and and also uh, has very, very tenful to to liberty content. So they were broadcasting over the territory of Soviet Union, and um, they were spreading the idea of the of the Western world, or the ideas of the free world, over the country that was over the state that was opposite to to the western world during the cold war and of course that um, as the radio waves were easily caught by by um, radio receivers 
the Soviet government, government felt the need to do something, but not to tell the the, the opposite meaning, or the opposite opinions, or the opposite views, but to to jam this these signals, because the, the, this is the way they roll. Well, why don't we have a quick listen to what they sounded like? Here are a couple. One is electronic noise. One is a sort of garbled speech meant to mess with your head, I guess. I mean, I quite like it, actually, but you can imagine it getting rather annoying after a while, and particularly if you're a young person and you're trying to listen to an interesting program from the BBC or from anywhere else, or just listen to some music, because it wasn't just about, you know, blocking the voices, say, from the West, which you can kind of understand. I mean, sometimes it was just really about blocking the West, wasn't it? Of course, of course. The whole well, actually, I like the sound as well. In the in the era of techno, it sounds even modern. Uh, uh, but yes, of course. For you know, I consider the the communism idea or the Soviet idea completely artificial and uh, and completely unnatural to to human person. And to to make it survive, you should you should be isolated from the other world. Because it doesn't work. Uh, what worked in 1920s or in immediately after the revolution that didn't work in 1950s or 1960s, after the Stalin's repressions and uh, when the when the though the Khrushchev's though began. The thaw, by the way, just for people to understand, is the time when Khrushchev came to power after Stalin. He sort of rejects Stalinism, and in fact travels to the West, travels to America, and sort of initiates this. Uh, several years, wasn't it, of the thaw, which, like, the melting of the ice, during which was, it was a time of cultural liberation, relatively speaking, more freedom in the arts, more freedom in culture generally. That's right. For the, yeah. That's what we mean by Khrushchev's thaw, right? But the, the jammers, the Glushilki, started uh, earlier, mm. uh, after the Cold War, during Stalin times. And this, is, this was a very serious campaign for the Soviet Union. Just imagine, there are, like, just three stations. It, it is radio stations. Nothing, nothing more than that. These are some voices and some news, some some music broadcasted over the, mostly over the European part of the Soviet Union. You would, I, I doubt you would listen to station like this in Novosibirsk. But still, you there are like two or three radio stations that you don't want your citizens to hear, and they invested enormous amount of money into jamming it, into blocking these stations. How did they do it? I mean, t talk about t tell us about the actual technology of it. First of all, you 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 find the uh, they tried to count how much how much money they spent into jammers. It is from one hundred million dollars to one hundred twenty million dollars. It's really a lot of money. Really a lot of money. In nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, it was much more than now. And you can imagine how this money could have been spent. <laughs> Okay, so the, the technology was um, that on uh, in the very center of Moscow, nearby Kremlin, on the street called Nikolskaya, was the the radio center that belonged to KGB directly. So they invented all these beautiful sounds that you demonstrated, and they were saying what to what they want to to jam more than more than other show because that was really really expensive to to block the signal of radio on the territory of the, of the gigantic country. So from, from this 
Kremlin Street, the signal was sent to a radio center that was built in 1920s and was built actually to to spread the signal around around Soviet Union. But it was used in completely um, d different purpose. So th uh, the, the the whole building was built on the territory of this radio center to um, spread the signal of the, the blocking signal, the jamming signal all around the country as well. And it, they needed so much energy and so much electricity and so so many special engineer um, establishments to use that. So they had to build the whole pool outside with water. You can actually swim there. It's really big. And this pool was uh, used f to keep the cold water to... Um, um, to lower the temperature of the of the heated um, devices, because you really, well, spending one one million one hundred million dollars for jamming, you of course you were invested in into energy into power, and uh, when they were really really doing their best to to block the the news block from BBC, so they they needed to lower the temperature of the transmitters. So if it's a strong signal, you need more power to overwrite course, it each time. So course, everyone raised their signal, everyone raised the energy. Actually, they, they spent much more money for jamming, for blocking, than you guys spent for creating these <laughs> radio shows and establishing the whole station. Wait a minute, hold on a second. You're saying that they spent like $100 million to make a sound like this? Exactly, but a short remark also to spread it on the huge territory mm. from, you know, how big this country is. Well, it's interesting also because I think what happened, um, from what I understand, happened as well in the West to counter this. It was it became a little bit like uh, the audio version of the missile situation because the Americans then invested a huge amount of money in Berlin to make their transmitters even more powerful. So it's like that there was this invisible war going on in the airwaves that the Soviets were blocking, trying to jam the signal, and then the Americans were boosting their signal so to make it more difficult to jam, and then and also using various other techniques of moving the, moving the frequency around to make it easier for people to, 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 to catch it. And, and of course they did, despite $100 million worth of technology spent to jam it, people did manage to catch it, didn't they? Yeah, it was 1960s, 1970s. The, uh, my country was the country of great physicians and engineers, mm. and you know how enormous technical, pro technical progress was in Soviet Union. So that was not a hard task to overcome this, the sound you demonstrated a few minutes mm. ago. That was uh, more or less um, um, a decidable task. So... Um, there were a bunch of stories. One uh, famous dissident, he was actually an Otkaznik, uh, Vladimir Slepak. Otkazniks were people who wanted to immigrate to Israel, but they were rejected in their visa to leave the Soviet Union. So they were kept in this country, like in prison, but free. <clears throat> so they were fired from their job and they were managing to find some, some really, really poor job, like a, a person could be an academician or a scientist or uh, a teacher or a professor at the university and uh, th this person would be fired like the next day and uh, these Otkazniks would uh, look for um, for a job 
as a night watch or a cleaner or anything like this. So one famous dissident and uh, Otkaznik, Vladimir Slepak, he bears the same name as me. So uh, he um, applied to go to Israel. He was rejected. He, he was fired the next day. And he was a night watch in a morgue. So just imagine night, the morgue, and nobody in. Just, just some corpse. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he was also an engineer in his past life before he, was, he, he became an Otkaznik. So there was a big lift in the building used for, you know, transporting corpse from one floor to another. And he, a huge metal construction, a huge metal construction. So he, he transformed this whole lift into a big antenna and he made it to, to listen to Voice of America or Raider Liberty on his, on his job because nobody was in those uh, poor bodies were not able to, you know, to to write a report to, to the police or KGB. And he was enjoying his his night shifts, listening to the most uh, fabulous music in the world. And also in the night, it was a little easier to listen to these stations because they were not, you know, uh, the, the most dangerous thing for them was the world. The, the most dangerous thing for them was the world. And they they did their best to jam the the news blogs, the mm. publications, the talkings, and the, the opinions. And the music was was in less danger. They didn't like the spread of jazz and, and rock mm. and roll in the country, but that was less lesser problem. So, uh, what you what you used to um, to show in the in the very beginning of the show, Willis Conover uh, mm. on uh, uh, Voice of America. He, some people name him as a person who uh, who won the Cold War because he was the host of a, mm. of a jazz show on Voice of America. And like everybody in my country mm. older than 40, 45 years old knows this this fabulous, beautiful voice and his name. This is Willis Conover in Time of Jazz on Voice of America because uh, his, his uh, radio show was broadcasted at night and it was less jammed and people quite had an opportunity to listen to also, people were going somewhere in the country because, you know, the, the transmitters mm -hmm. were set in, yeah. in big cities. Mm -hmm. And when you go to the country or to a small village, uh, you, you can do that. So there were the whole picnic tradition when you have some food, some drinks, and you go to the bank of the river and you'll listen to some beautiful voices from <laughs> London or from <laughs> Munich or from, from, from Washington. Well, so somebody tells us a really funny story. Maybe Alex Kahn told us a story about Willis Conover, which was <clears throat> later he actually came to uh, to uh, Soviet Union. Um, this is much, must have been in the late 70s maybe or something. I mean, maybe even later, I'm not sure. But um, he came and um, there was some festival where he was invited to speak. Uh, and apparently he arrived there and everybody ignored him. Or nobody took any notice until he got to the microphone. And when he started to speak, he was mobbed. Because, of course, nobody knew what he looked like. He didn't need to know what he looked like. He was a radio presenter. But, of course, they all recognized his voice. So as soon as he said, this is Willis Conover, you know. It's like <laughs> there was a huge pulse towards him. The other story, which, um, <clears throat> uh, in terms of what you were just saying, which was interesting for us, is that so our, our project, the X-Ray Audio Project, which is, you know, about the records of forbidden music on x-rays in the Soviet Union. Um, one of the people that we interviewed, um, he told us exactly this story that you said then, which is that 
he to go and make recordings from which he could make x-ray records sometimes obviously he could get hold of uh, gramophone records brought from outside the Soviet Union but sometimes he would take a portable recording gear a uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder and I assume a car battery or some power source and take it to the top of a hill at night in fact he used to go to Sochi I think yeah. didn't he, he go to Sochi uh, from Moscow and climb a hill and uh, make his recordings from Voice of America. That's great. <laughs> to, uh, to use as the sort of originals for, for making his X-ray records. I was talking to some, some jazz musicians. They all were listening to, mm. to Voice of America and BBC, or all people who were fond of Western music. They just didn't have any other choice before the perestroika. So uh, I, I was talking to some, radio, uh, some jazz musician who was saying that uh, at this time, maybe that was some... Nixon times when everything mm. was jammed, like everything, and he was listening to to this, and when just he heard like, there was just few seconds of jazz, were like happiness for, mm. for this person. He would he would listen for a half hour of this crazy sounds like to listen to these tiny seconds of. Uh, Louis Armstrong it's or exactly the parallel to X-ray audio, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's, they sound awful. You know, quite a few of them sound <laughs> and then there's this little hint of melody that just everyone smiles with. And it's, uh, yeah. Amazing. Exactly. It's, yeah. And that, that's and that's 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 interesting, isn't it? Because it is the power of music, in fact. You could say it's the power of the forbidden as well, because mm. the, obviously when something is forbidden, it takes on a greater value. But yeah, I mean in our experience of talking to people was that they just wanted to hear something that they loved, not something they were supposed to listen to. And they would go to all sorts of strange lengths and listen to all sorts of terrible sounds just to, to have it. But Vladimir, earlier we were talking and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the radio, the official radio in the Soviet Union. I mean, and, and what that was actually like. So what, what were you able to or supposed to listen to? Uh, well, the radio was spread in Soviet Union in in. 1920s mostly and it was brought to every far um, corner of the country every far village and there were these huge black plates that were established on uh, on uh, on some height in 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 really distant distant areas where people would not ever imagine that it is possible to to radio for for radio to exist and there were there was the whole campaign all over Soviet Union, and when, like, one day those black plates began to speak and to play music, that was like a miracle for, for um, you know, people in Soviet Union who lived outside of Moscow, Leningrad, mm. Sverdlovsk, big cities. So uh, the, it was like a miracle, and people get attached to to radio really, really, um, with all their hearts. And when the television began in 1934 in Soviet Union, it was really expensive, and there were like really few people who who could afford it. People would go uh, from, uh, people would gather um, in parties at someone's house to watch television until 1960s. Mm. I would say it was it was really expensive and rare. And radio, it was everywhere. And radio was the um, the main channel for. Uh, for the authorities to communicate with people to say to say them actually what to do what not not to do and uh, so radio was really big and when this thing appeared the the western voices 
which were called the enemy's voices in Soviet Union. Very, sounds very evil. Uh, so uh, it, it really was a matter of danger for for uh, the authorities. So this is why they invest so much money mm-hmm. you know, to, to struggle. And they even created the the own radio station that was called, uh, that exists now and, and is really uh, nice and big right now, which was called, in 1964, it was called Radio Mayak, which means the lighthouse. Maybe the lighthouse of the idea of socialism, I don't know. Uh, so it was created, it was, the radio in Soviet Union was very old-fashioned, always. You're like, hello, comrades, and now you'll hear the truth. <laughs> but this uh, Radio Lighthouse, Radio Mayak, was um, supposed to be more youth-oriented, more attached to young people, and to maybe to put some some new music, as they consider it to be new uh, or modern. So yeah, and they even so if they even put the the own radio station Mayak that that established uh, that mm. was established to 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 also to struggle with with the enemy's voices. So in other words, this was the Radio Mayak was actually meant to provide. Okay, we know young people want to listen to popular music, swingy, yeah. groovy, cool music. So rather than rather than them try and tune into Voice America or BBC World or Radio Liberty, let's give them a uh, a station that plays that kind of thing, so they won't bother tuning into the West. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, and also for undecided people who who like who knew that there are some enemies' mm. voices that you can listen to at night. But there is easy way, Radio Mayak. <laughs> so for for some people, there mm. is just easy way to mm. to get something fresh and new. But I think also it's important to remember that in terms of radio in the Soviet Union, you know, this from the Russian point of view, Russians invented radio, right? I mean, we in the West, we consider the Marconi invented radio, but you... We Russians... consider Alexander Popov invented radio. Mm. And actually, he studied in my hometown, Ekaterinburg, and we have a museum of radio in Ekaterinburg, which states clearly that that was Alexander Popov who, who invented radio. I think they, they did it with Marconi at, at quite at the same time. Mm. But Marconi was more quick to get a patent for for radio, uh, so that's just it. I, so I don't steal any any glory and fame from Marconi. I'm just saying that I think they were at the same time as Brazilians um, invented planes at quite at the same time as uh, Wright brothers. Yeah, and of course there's the the the, the war between the Edison and somebody else who invented who invented the, uh, the 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 wax cylinder first. You know, or the gramophone records. There's always these things seem to arise. Simultaneously in different parts of the world, right? But the whether or not Popov or Marconi was first, the one thing that's for sure about the Soviet Union, which is what you said earlier, was that it was an extremely educated scientific place, particularly in the 50s and 60s, right? Scientific education was extremely good. I remember speaking to people, um, old guys in in Russia for part of our project, and they were all very well educated in how to build their own radios. And so the radio that you could buy from the store would have a very restricted uh, wavelength that you could actually access. But of course, they were all very good at hacking these things and changing them so that you could widen the, 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 the frequencies that you could There reach, was right? even a period when they, uh, these little radios that were sold in, in the shops, they, they, they cut off the short waves from them. 
just to prevent them uh, people to listen to short waves and where they could call the they could catch the Voice of America or BBC. So, but then they they got it back because it was not possible to struggle with that because people were really technically educated, mm. and also this was the result of. You you couldn't just easily buy things in in shops in mm. in Soviet Union. We were lack of everything, and people um, did their best to reinvent things made up in home and use it. So people could do miracles. They could build. They I know stories how people build the whole cars in their own garage from from you know from garbage. And this car those cars used to to drive and they could use it. So. People in the Soviet Union could invent, reinvent and rebuild almost everything. This is why I'm saying that uh, Radio Jammers was a very expensive attempt to, to block the, the enemy's voices, but n- not really successful because uh, Russian people could, could <laughs> find the, the escape from any technical situation. When did the era of the Jammers end? Um, right after the perestroika began, maybe 1986. Mm. Mikhail Gorbachev just just stopped it with the, with a special uh, uh, declare. And they dismantled the towers. They dismantled. They they took down the actual uh, the, the broadcasting jamming stations. I, I saw photos of um, you know these huge metal antennas mm. all around the city, and I I don't see it anymore. And I've been to this um, to this room where the transmitters used to used to be and it's empty now you know and this is very touching moment when you enter a room which was full of really huge effective very energetic transmitters that you needed a pool to (laughs) to to cool them a pool of water and now it's empty and you just enter this space which is more like a gym like a gym without you know empty gym empty field for for playing basketball and it's empty and nobody's there and this is the sign to me that it was useless useless efforts to to overcome those signals i mean this is a beautiful story of how russian people defeated the authorities attempts to to block the signal of jazz and and free news but that was also you you just come to this lousy place with the scratched scratched walls and dirty dirty floor and this used to be one of the most powerful places in the soviet union and it's not anymore it's just the the room with dirty floor and nothing like that nothing more right but that's that's the history and it's an extraordinary thing of all those endeavors um you know the endeavors to stop the people making music on x-rays huge amounts of propaganda and people sending people to prison and stuff and it didn't stop them actually and then of course technology moves on and you can't even stop them anymore and actually of course what happens next is that we're in, we're in a radio studio radio is still this extraordinary thing you work in radio sometimes it's it's still this wonderful thing and i love that the fact that even in the even in the age of tv in the age of cinema in the age of netflix which is also great we still love radio but you, you know uh, they tried to do the same recently because there is a very popular russian messenger telegram it was established by a russian inventor and uh, IT entrepreneur in the United States 
It's called Telegram, and it's not controlled by FSB, the you know the Secret Service. So, so they don't give away any of the chats and any of the of the messages. Never any request, no. So the the Russian state decided to block this messenger. Ha ha ha! It's still happening. <laughs> I'm using it all the time, and all my friends use it. Like all the efforts were useless. So maybe they should think it over. Maybe they should recall some times of their um, endless force <laughs> well of course we must remember also that radio jamming is still going on around the world north korea and south korea both jam each other's radio signals probably ineffectively actually I, somebody tell me that in, in iran they block satellite signals maybe the same sort of thing so it's still happening but listen vladimir thank you so much it's been a pleasure to hear about soviet radio jammers from you gentlemen it's been a pleasure to spread the word and to be here thank you well, why don't we have a little bit more of Voice of America broadcasting all those years ago into Soviet ears to persuade them of the benefits of capitalism and all that stuff. And a good morning to you. This is the Voice of America Breakfast Show. My name is Robert Johnson, and I'm your host on this Saturday morning. Every day, we're here with this informal program of popular musical entertainment, feature reports and people, places and events, and a bit of casual conversation. The engineer today is a gentleman who is not going up, up and away. He is Richard Johnson. listening to the Bureau of Lost Culture show and the subject is shortwave radio during the Cold War. Another Soviet radio phenomena that Vladimir, Paul and I didn't get a chance to speak about is something called the Russian woodpecker. Now, if you're a bird lover or a bird song lover, this next bit may be a little bit disappointing because the Russian woodpecker has nothing to do with birds. It has got something to do with the forest where there once were many songbirds, although after a certain incident, apparently they all fell silent. And it's a forest which is in the north of the Ukraine, a beautiful part of the world, which goes by the name of Chernobyl. And for most of us in the West, that means one thing, the world's worst nuclear accident 
to date. The site of a nuclear reactor which went into meltdown and sent waves of radioactive fallout across Europe in 1986. But what is then this Russian woodpecker? Well, it's a sound. It's this sound. Does that sound like a woodpecker to you? doesn't really to me. There is a kind of knocking thing going on. I suppose that's the woodpecker bit. But um, if you've been listening to the radio in the 1970s or the 80s on the shortwave and maybe you're a ham radio enthusiast or just listening to some program from in the world, you may have been disrupted by that sound. It acted, I suppose, as a kind of accidental, inadvertent jamming signal from the Soviet Union. And it came, or was made, by something called the Duga. The Duga was situated fairly close to the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. The Duga was something which was built from the early 1970s. And it was an early warning system during the Cold War. Its intention was to be able to detect the flames, the exhaust flames coming from ballistic missiles fired by the Americans or possibly by the British towards the Soviet Union so that uh, they could be knocked out before they got as far as the Soviet Union. It was a radar detecting system. And it was and is absolutely gigantic. It rises in the forest like a vast technological vision, something drawn from some post-apocalyptic future because... It lies now in ruins. But when it was built, there was probably nothing like it in the world. Probably never has been anything like it in the world. In some ways, it's what I think, in possibly in President Trump's dreams, he imagines his wall uh, between the US and the Me Mexico would be like. A vast technological structure bristling with uh, receivers and uh, spying equipment and machines to power them and quite terrifying, actually. Uh, it's almost a kilometre long, and it's about 150 metres high, uh, made up of this incredible structure of uh, metal girders and spiky antennae. Um, you can now go to Chernobyl, should you choose to. It's now been reopened to tourists, and it is a beautiful part of the world. Um, but if you go there, you can check out the Duga system. Vladimir said earlier that the jamming towers around Moscow consumed a vast amount of energy, and it has been suggested that the proximity of the Duga to the Chernobyl nuclear reactor was so that the reactor could provide the vast amounts of energy needed to send these incredibly intense pulses of radar around the world. The Duga has also become associated with various conspiracy theories. It appears that the Duga was designed by scientists to stop nuclear weapons, as we said. But apparently it never would have worked. There was some major fault or some major misunderstanding about radar, which meant that it wouldn't have been that useful. So other people have claimed various other things about it, 
Um, they've claimed that the low-frequency signal that was being broadcast uh, from Duga was intended to change human behavior, even destroy brain cells. That's probably been fueled by the fact that it's true that in the Soviet times, the Soviet authorities denied that it even existed, even to their own people. It was described on the map as a, a children's camp. Even back in the, just after the accident, when an American journalist got access to the area, he was told by his minder that it was, the Duga was just a, an unfinished hotel project. There is also a conspiracy theory uh, which claims that the director of the military projects in the area had been siphoning off a huge amount of money. And the fact that the do itself was not effective, that it had been built incorrectly, was also a problem for him. And that he gave orders... Uh, to the scientists and engineers at the Chernobyl nuclear station to set the reactor settings to very dangerous levels, which they did, and that caused the meltdown. And the meltdown, of course, made it impossible for the government to investigate the Duga project and the other military projects in the area because it was so dangerous. And therefore, the director of the project was able to escape justice. I have no idea whether that is true or not. But it is true that the incredible, the powerful radar pulses that the transmitter sent out, sent out uh, would travel to the West and would disrupt lots of shortwave communication, especially amateur radio. And it would overload the receivers and get in with the music. So as I said earlier, a kind of inadvertent Soviet jamming signal. And it was called because of the noise it made, the woodpecker. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Let's move on to the third in our series of Soviet shortwave stories, the radio hooligan. When Paul and I were investigating and interviewing people for our X-ray audio project, check it out, xrayaudio.com, about the records cut on x-ray in the Cold War era in the Soviet Union, various of the people that we spoke to, old Russian guys, did mention something uh, called Soviet radio hooligans. We were intrigued. And in further digging, we found out that the notion of pirate radio, which is probably familiar to people in this country, maybe you imagine the 1960s with Radio Caroline and Radio Essex and all that stuff, broadcasting from outside British territorial waters on ships or even platforms out in the North Sea somewhere. A time, of course, when you know the airwaves in this country were ruled by the BBC, uh, who tended to play a fairly uh, educational, should we say, uh, program of culture and music. And, of course, the pirate radio stations was set up to broadcast really what young people wanted to listen to and became very popular. As a result of that, of course, all the radio uh, licensing and all that stuff got changed and you got commercial stations later. But the thought of pirate radio stations in the Soviet Union seems unlikely. Uh, Vladimir talked earlier about the efforts that the Soviets went to to jam 
signals broadcast by the Americans and the British into the Soviet Union, expending a vast amount of money and technology on it. So the idea that Soviets themselves would set up a pirate radio station seems unbelievable, really. And of course it is. It wouldn't really have been possible, even if somebody had the technology and they were doing it outside the country, from the Baltic maybe, or from inside the Soviet Union, they would have been tracked down and wiped out, probably fairly brutally. Or would they? It seems that some brave souls, young souls, young individuals, hooligans as they were called, did set up in their bedrooms, maybe in their parents' garages or datches outside the main towns, and broadcast, set themselves up as individual little pirate radio stations playing popular music, music which maybe you didn't hear on the state radio station at all. Black Nye music, the songs of the gulags, the criminal songs, and possibly some Western jazz and rock and roll, who knows? And, and also, you know, talking and, uh, about life and about themselves, and like DJs do. Very brave souls, I think, because, of course, you know, this is the Soviet Union. You really don't want to get caught doing anything. Uh, and certainly something which could be interpreted as being vaguely to do with espionage or spying. Now, they were called hooligans, radio hooligans, and we're going to find out more about them from Alex Khan. Alex is the Russian correspondent for the arts for the BBC. He was... Uh, for many years, in the late 60s and 70s, he ran the Leningrad Jazz Club. He was born in the Soviet Union and grew up there. And he came to, I think he came to the UK in the 90s, and he's been here since. Uh, but I met him on the street, not far from here, actually. It's in a cafe, and the recording is pretty pretty scratchy. It sounds like it's on a radio, in fact. Uh, so bear with us on that. But Alex is going to tell us the story of... Uh, a radio hooligan that he knew. Now, the notion of hooliganism is quite interesting in the Soviet Union. Of course, we've got an idea about what a hooligan is here, uh, maybe. Somebody who's, you know, kicks and smashes things and shouts and causes a storm at night, rips things up, you know, breaks into places maybe and graffiti and damage and all that stuff, like a vandal, a young delinquent. Of course, we were obsessed with those things. Uh, in the 60s here too, football hooligans, of course. But the hooliganism in the Soviet Union, it was a whole thing. It actually became sort of defined in law. Uh, and the law was aimed at stopping what was known as antisocial behavior. And for sure, some of it would be behavior which would be regarded as antisocial elsewhere in the world. But quite often, it seems to have been countercultural behavior, I would say. Uh, you know, whether it be cutting x ray records or operating your own radio broadcasting station, or possibly dressing up in Western styles like the Stilyagi, the Soviet hipster youths who aped American fashions with quiffs and teddy boy-style clothes and danced to swing music uh, in private clubs or in secret apartments, much to the disapproval of the Komsomol and the Soviet authorities. All these people could be described in the Soviet Union as hooligans, and there were laws against them. So they could be prosecuted, if not persecuted. So anyway, let's go over to Alex and just hear about one particular radio hooligan 
that he knew. It was, uh, in, well, it was still primary school, believe it or not. I mean, uh, maybe it was in the third grade, so I would have been 10, maybe 11. So it would have been 1964, 65, mid-60s. I was born in 1954. So, and we had, uh, I was... I lived in a relatively small city in southern Ukraine called Kherson. Uh, my parents were both teachers, uh, Jewish intellectuals, and uh, pretty much the same social milieu was in the, in the school. And then we got a newcomer in about sort of third grade, a guy who was a year older than us. He, for, for the poor performance in a different school, he was made to sit another year. Right. And so he came to our school to sit for the second right. time in the third grade. Right. And he was from a outskirts of the city, but in fact it was more like a, like a countryside right. where people lived in small houses where they had small gardens which was very unusual for, for, for the Soviet cities he lived with his family his mother father who I never met his elder brother probably was I don't know maybe 16 maybe 18 maybe even 20 I told you that it was in his house that I for the first time saw a tape recorder, which was a big thing, not a portable, but a huge kind of stationary thing, which was a radio combined with the tape recorder. So it wasn't like a, a, a record player. More often than not, those were a radio with the record player on top, turntable. But in this case, those were just very, very new. Instead of the turntable, it had uh, a tape deck, reel-to-reel tape. And uh, so his brother, that's what this guy told me. And, and somehow we were sitting on the same desk. And I was a, a good student, he was a poor student, so I helped him okay. academically and he was my protector. It was a very unlikely friendship, but somehow it happened. So he, I'm, that's how I, I was in his house on a couple of occasions. And I saw that he told me that his brother was a radio hooligan. Is that how he described it? Yes, that's an accepted term. They were, they were, they were wearing it like a, a badge of oh, honor. Right. You know? As far as I understand, it came about in Sort of uh, late 50s, early 60s. Okay. A combination of two passions which were quite popular amongst the Soviet youth. Amateur radio, hugely popular and quite encouraged by the state. There were special radio circles, uh, club, and it was free, of course, so you would have a qualified radio engineer as a teacher 
who would teach kids how to assemble a radio receiver and a radio transmitter, how to operate those. So it was part of the extracurriculum education for young kids. My, another friend of mine, excuse me, was part of the same kind of social milieu as, as myself, Jewish, good, well-educated family and everything, intelligentsia. His father was a former military, and he was a teacher in one of those clubs, not banned. They were not banned. They were there. They were around. You could buy them. Right. In the regular store. This was within the system of the so-called uh, volunteer society of uh, assistance to army, navy, and uh, air force. So which was a part kind of, of the military education. Right. The idea was that the kids, while still teenagers, would get skills in radio engineering, right. which might be useful when they right. serve in the army. Right. And uh, of course it was controlled. You had to pass exams and tests and get a license, especially to use the transmitter. Could you tune into uh, Western broadcasts? Yes. You could and you did. Voice of America, BBC, Radio Liberty, Deutsche Welle. They were jumped. But still, well, jamming is the wave could evade and you could get to hear something especially precious were radio receivers that you could buy in the Soviet store on short waves and there were like several ranges 25, 31 49, I think, and on each of those, you could tune to each of these stations, BBC, Voice of America, but they all broadcast on 11, 13, and 19, I think, which you could not buy in a Soviet right. store. You could bring a Western radio with those frequencies, but very few people did it. They were more expensive and they, very few people traveled. And uh, But if you were lucky to have one of those, you could listen to Western radio, not jam. Right. Because they didn't bother. Right. Jamming was also quite expensive. So they didn't bother to jam on those frequencies, on 11, 13, and 19. Right. 
because most people didn't have the radios anyway. Most people didn't have access to, to those frequencies anyway. Right. So they only jammed where people yep. could commonly. Yeah. Okay. So if you But we all listened to all of that stuff. So you, you by carefully tuning you yes. could pick up say Willis Conover's jazz show on Voice of America. Absolutely. Do you absolutely. remember doing that? Ah, absolutely, yeah. of course. All the time. That's what I was growing up on. These radio hooligans used the knowledge and the equipment which was available and encouraged to build their own transmitters. And they were using them for their own broadcasts. It's Pirate radio. They, they had their names and yeah, they were joking, they were somewhere coming up with funny inventive names for their station and it was an exhilarating feeling of freedom right. you obviously become a local hero although right. you keep it secret right. it's illegal you can be could you persecuted be... You, you, your equipment could be confiscated could you, be, you could be traced presumably could, could yes you could know, trace I don't know how it works but I mean yes yeah. and uh, again I remember this friend of mine, he showed me those were trucks cruising the little streets of that neighborhood. They were like TV detector ones, trying to catch the signal. Once they caught the signal, they would break in. If, you are, if they found the equipment would be confiscated, you could be penalized. I mean, look, uh, even in this country, as we know, there were, I mean, pirate radio existed in, 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 in the early mid-60s, so the BBC would not broadcast any pop or rock music. And, of course, in the ideologically even more puritan and restricted society like the Soviet Union, what was there to listen to? But it, it was definitely a, a, a subculture. So there we have it, Alex Khan on those ingenious, technically innovative, and rather daring, I think, Soviet young radio hooligans, as they were called. Before that, we had the strange story of this Russian woodpecker broadcasting from Chernobyl, trying to brainwash us, apparently, bend our minds here in the West. And before that, Vladimir Ryevsky, our guest, who came to talk about Soviet jammers trying to block out our signals going into the Soviet Union during the Cold War era. We didn't even have time to get onto the subjects of those very, very strange shortwave broadcast signals. The number stations, voices counting to infinity, strange, peculiar, warped signals sent to spies and agents in the field, still being sent to spies and agents in the field, some would say. Maybe we'll come back to that on another occasion. Thanks to the Softwave, Softwave? The Shortwave Radio Archive for those sounds of Voice of America. And uh, to Norman Field, who lent us his collection of jamming signals. And of course, to Vladimir, who lent us some more. We appreciate that. We are the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next time with some more stories of lost counterculture. See you then.